0: This episode of New Politics was released on the 9th of September, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wombol and Wajak people.
1: Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, there's new legislation to protect gig economy workers, but the business community isn't happy at all. Alan Joyce leaves behind a sea of disaster at Qantas and a woman is going to come in and clean up the mess. Australia thinks of itself as bold and brave, so why is it so resistant to change? And we look at the latest opinion polls and analyse Peter Dutton's ridiculous idea to hold a second referendum. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. I'm not paying back any of the job keeper I received either. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription and you can also subscribe on Substack. But whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. Parliament returned to Canberra this week and the big focus of the week was industrial relations and making changes for gig economy workers and that includes amendments to existing legislation to provide better job security, better pay and safer workplaces and there's also provisions for equal pay for equal work and to criminalise Wage theft. There'll be provisions for minimum standards of penalty rates, superannuation, insurance, and also regulating that process of deactivation where employees can be removed from a gig platform for no reason at all. And Most of this seems reasonable. Some of these platforms, like Uber, are massive multinational corporations and making massive profits on the back of low pay and poor conditions for their employees. And the role of work has to be a fair compensation for the tasks involved, not to support big business players in the marketplace. But already, employer groups have started off a campaign against same job, same pay. The Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry says that these reforms are going to destroy businesses. The man who says no to everything, Peter Dutton, has criticised everything about this legislation, suggesting that it's all about Labor pursuing a union agenda. And I thought the entire reason for the existence of the Labor Party is to pursue a union agenda, but that's a different matter. Fair pay for fair work and trying to provide for better working conditions for workers who have long suffered from poor working conditions might be something that we might see agreement for and get bipartisan support. But in politics, unless it's for salary rises for politicians, it's almost impossible to get bipartisan support for anything these days. It's hard to believe after the reforms of
2: the Hawke and Keating government and then the reforms of the Howard government, that Australia was known in the early 20th century to be the workers' paradise. We had a very strong system of wages. We had a very strong system of workers' rights. It did mean that there was a a level of prosperity in Australia where the wealth was shed out thanks to the returns of fair labour and goods and services, and people were paid at what. Most people were fairly happy at. Now, the arbitration court was set up so that they'd have ambit claims just to save time with having to uh, do the administration for each minor claim they wanted. So the unions put in outrageous claims, knowing that they'd never get them. But instead of having to file everything every two years when you wanted a dollar pay rise an hour, it was part of your ambit claim. Interesting thing is by the end of the Arbitration Commission, some of the ambit claims were actually being met due to the natural processes of inflation and changes of the cost of living, etc. Nonetheless, this changes a little bit with the Accords and then a lot with the Howard. And since then, the the wage dichotomy or the wage discourse hasn't really gone well for people on a wage. The wages haven't gone up that much. We have highly skilled professions that are chronically underpaid. We have underbrained, no talents being completely overpaid. We'll be talking about Alan Joyce later in Unrelated News. And we have to get down. Now, the government is moving again. Let's be fair, because we're going to be hard on the government again. But it is moving in the right direction. I'm not sure it has moved fast enough. But the ship of state takes a while to turn around. And positive steps are better than no steps and better again than negative steps.
1: I think it's just so hard to accept that such simple changes to workplace laws can bring such a hostile response from the Liberal and National Parties and from big business. And sure, you do need to have a balance between business interests and worker interests, but the balance has flipped towards business interests for far too long. And the other factor is that these are not small businesses that we're talking about. Uber, Menulog, Hungry Panda, Airtasker. Their business model is based on worker exploitation and I think overall it is okay to have disruption in different industries and disruption and technological change in workplaces have been the hallmark of human history. And if it wasn't, well, we'd probably still have children working as chimney sweeps. But these business models are based on the exploitation of workers and the undermining of workers' rights or working rights and conditions. So that's the part that needs to change. And the changes are relatively simple to understand. Here's the Minister for Industrial Relations, Tony Burke. Underpaying people is cheaper. Yeah, it is. Slavery is probably cheaper too.
2: Yeah, there is some modest pass through here. We are talking about some of the lowest paid people in Australia and if that means there's a tiny bit extra that you pay when your pizza arrives to your door and they're more likely to be safe on the roads getting there, then I reckon that's a pretty small price to pay. The delivery that you get to your door is not the only delivery that person is making in the course of an hour. Uh, So the fact that the cost might be modest for yourself uh, doesn't mean it doesn't all add up in a significant way for that worker.
1: So all up, these changes will provide around $500 million extra per year for Labor-hire workers and around $400 million for gig economy workers as well. And who wouldn't want better worker protections except for business leaders and the Liberal Party? This is what an advanced and civilised economy should be doing. Otherwise, we're back on the road to serfdom.
2: Yeah, which is what they want, of course. Gina Reinhart. Said the quiet part out loud a few years back when she pointed to African workers on $2 an hour working very happily because it meant that they were able to sustain a very, very frugal lifestyle. She tried to walk that back by saying, Oh, it's different in Australia, etc., etc., which didn't make it much better because then it put in a very uh, racist aspect to it. But I don't think that if It came out that workers should only be paid $2 an hour. Gina Watt-Reinhardt or Jerry Harvey or Twiggy Forrest or any of the usual suspects would race to the courts to say, no, 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 this is not fair. Let's put the wages back up. And of course, what seems to have been lost, probably because it was Karl Marx who said it, and I have said this before. Marx did point out, and Adam Smith agreed, not that they ever met, but Adam Smith points out a very similar thing, that wages are actually a very effective investment. If you invest in plant, say, the second you turn it on, it devalues. It can't remember anything. It just does what it's told. It wears out and you have to replace it. And The hope is, is that it produces more than it costs, and that's not always the case. People remember things, can learn things, can adapt, can change Okay, they get sick, they get injured, et cetera, but we have mechanisms to at least mitigate that, or at least we should have mechanisms to mitigate that. The fact that they don't understand that, I think, says a lot to how smart these people really are, and the two words that should go in front of smart is not very I get that you don't want to overspend and that there needs to be some kind of balance, but the balance is going too far the wrong way. And these little changes that are being made by the federal government aren't disastrous.
1: Well, I guess that we know that business and employer groups who are going to oppose anything to do with industrial relations when it's proposed by a Labor government. And they've got this idea that human labor should just be like a tap that you can switch on and off at whim and pay close to nothing. And as you suggested, David, I'm sure that even if it did get to the point of slavery, they still wouldn't be satisfied with that. And then we've also got the Liberal and National parties who will oppose everything, because that's their political model to do this. And It is, of course, their job to make as much noise as possible about this. That's the interest groups that they represent. But there have to be limits. And even their good friend and lord of conservative economics, Friedrich Hayek, he suggested that when the free market produces bad outcomes, there needs to be government intervention for the working poor. So I think that it's right for the government to step in and regulate where there are poor outcomes that need to be addressed within the marketplace. And I think this is one of those circumstances.
2: Yeah, they're horrible companies. (laughs) I know that there are people who very much enjoy working for them, and that's great. And that it, it fills a need either as a primary source of income or as a secondary source of income, but they're not at all interested in the drivers. And you see the food delivery people say, riding and driving very dangerously because they get paid per delivery. So the more deliveries they can squeeze in, the more they get paid. This is insanity. So you see people taking terrible risks for that extra $5 that hour so they can bump their hourly rate up a little bit. It's obvious that things need to change and a little bit of regulation, which is what they hate the most, of course, won't hurt them at all.
1: And with this change to gig economy workers and labour hire companies, so there have been house of protest from the Liberal Party within Parliament and disruption to Parliament question time, based not just only on industrial relations issues, but a whole raft of other issues as well. And the government has been criticised for not dishing out what they're Receiving, And this follows on from what Anthony Albanese said during the last election campaign, that he wanted to bring back a level of civility to public discourse and to the parliament itself. But I think in these circumstances, you just need all sides to agree to this, not just the government of the day. And we can see that the Liberal Party gains an advantage by creating chaos, creating division and creating a public nuisance. And they've got no interest at all in keeping politics civil and they will always drag down parliamentary behaviour and debate. To their level, and it worked quite well for Tony Abbott. A lot of people said that he was unelectable in 2013, but with the negativity and doubt that he threw onto the Gillard and the Rudd governments, he ended up becoming Prime Minister. And it it did result in rubbish government for almost a decade, but it did get them into government. And we can see that Peter Dutton is trying on the same approach. And for me, it seems like Albanese is not learning from the errors of the Rudd government where Kevin Rudd gave all of these plum government jobs to former Liberal Party MPs. Peter Costello was made the head of the Future Fund. And where's Peter Costello now? He's head of the Nine Media and throwing as much dirt and propaganda at the Labor government through Nine, Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. So the moral of this story is that you don't do any favours for your opponents in politics. And for sure, Albanese isn't giving jobs to former Liberal Party MPs, but he's trying to be the nice guy within Australian politics. And I think it was admirable for. Kevin Rudd to actually try to make politics more of a bipartisan event but he quickly found out that this type of stuff is never reciprocated by the Liberal Party and that's when they refused to support his application to become the Secretary General to the United Nations but I realise that it's a little bit different for Anthony Albanese but he's still trying to make politics a better place and Parliament a better workplace as well but in Australian politics that's just never going to work. Here's a sample of the antics during question time in the Senate.
0: Senator Hughes, once again I called you to order and you kept interjecting. I am asking you to reflect on your own behaviour and when you are called to order, to come to order. Senator Hughes, I have called you to order several times. Th- uh, don't answer back. Do not answer back. I am directing you to order. I am directing you to be respectful of this chamber. And- Minister what to withdraw the imputations he was making on those that are specifically named on this side of the chamber. Uh, Senator Hughes, I don't believe there was an interjection. Senator Senator Hughes, Senator Hughes, please resume your seat. You've made your point of order. You have been you were disorderly through the entire time the minister was answering the question. That is Senator Hughes Senator Hughes, Senator Rustin, order, order on my left, order, 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 no, I'm, I'm making a point of order, I think it is a, um, Senator Cash, the, po- the point I, Senator Cash,
1: And for me, this is like student politics all over again. Senator Holly Hughes was just endlessly disrupting question time in the Senate. None of the business of the Senate could be done, and it was just interruption after interruption after interruption. But the Speaker of the Senate should have thrown Holly Hughes out of the chamber after the first interjection. The same goes for Milton Dick, the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Question time in the House this week was a rabble. And again, it gets down to the Labor government trying to be too fair and they need to start being unfair. And people are saying, oh, well, that wouldn't be good for democracy. Well... The Liberal Party isn't interested in democracy. They want to disrupt democracy. They never gave the Labor Party a fair hearing when they were sitting in opposition, and the Liberal Party haven't got anything to say in Parliament anyway. But I think the Labor government just needs to toughen up and control the agenda. And like Paul Keating said, if you control question time, you control the political agenda. And at the moment, the government just isn't doing that.
2: Milton Dick should be directed to be really tough. Bronwyn Bishop threw out nearly everybody in the Labour Party when she was Speaker.
1: Well, I think she almost threw herself out as well. Yeah, there was no one left. (laughs) And she was
2: a terrible, terrible, terrible Speaker. You can be a good Speaker, but still be an authoritative and tough Speaker. And I think Milton Dick needs to be shown that you can do that. And when they start acting like baboons, throw them out, name them, give all the parliamentary punishment you can. After a while, it will start to play havoc with their pre-selections. We had a member who was thrown out of parliament every day and achieved nothing. Maybe we should put somebody else in. I think the public do not like childish behaviour, ultimately. And I think that if the government starts acting like strict adults, we'll start to see a change. And the Liberal Party may just reform itself into an electable asset, rather than being the unelectable,
1: never-to-govern-again rabble that they are at the moment. There's also been news that the leader of the No campaign, Warren Mundine, is due to be installed as a senator in New South Wales. And the only problem here is that there's no vacancy at the moment. But Senator Maurice Payne is expected to retire from politics at the end of this year, But she was also expected to retire at the end of last year as well, and that didn't happen. So we're not sure where this story is coming from. The issue here is that Maurice Payne is a moderate, and Warren Mundine has aligned himself to the hard conservative right of the Liberal Party. And the New South Wales Liberal Party is dominated by the moderates, so this is all unlikely to happen. Warren Mundine was the national president of the Labor Party up until 2012, and he was rejected for a safe seat by the Labor Party, and it's been the longest dummy spit ever from anyone in politics. Warren Mundine then moved over to the Liberal Party, but he was rejected by the voters in the seat of Gilmore at the 2019 elections. So about the only way that he might be able to get into office is to be installed into the Senate rather than be voted in by the public. Warren Mundine is a divisive character. He was a divisive figure in the Labor Party. He's been divisive within the Liberal Party as well and now he's a highly divisive figure in the Voice of Parliament campaign. So if there ever is a Senate vacancy that does come up, he's not likely to be the replacement senator. He's
2: a very unifying character in Indigenous circles. They all hate him. So there's that. He's a very odd person. Now, I'm not going to talk to his identity as... As an Indigenous person, I can't really talk to that, and I shouldn't talk to that. But in terms of his utter destructive behaviour, his lack of clear thinking, it's clear that the only thing he wants is a seat in Parliament. He doesn't care how he gets it or who it's with. He's not driven by a strong ideology for or against anything except against whatever Labour is doing and the Greens are doing at the moment. But that's a very empty rhetoric because I'm not sure he could list any particular Labour or Greens policies that he doesn't like, apart from generalities. People accuse him of being paid. I don't think he's being paid by the other side. I think that he's basically giving himself to this side in the hope that he'll get a Senate seat. As you pointed out, there is no Senate seat available. Maurice Payne may be leaving, she may not. We don't know and we won't know till she announces it. I suspect that the sources tell us is someone from the Mundane camp and that he's heard the rumours and he's tried to get in early to say, well, I'm available and look, look at what I've done for you. Of course, if the referendum doesn't get up, he's finished anyway. Uh, and I know that there's a lot of you despairing out there that it is going to be no. I don't think he's got any chance of entering federal politics. I don't think the New South Wales Liberal Party particularly want him. They they seem to be starting to be moderate, particularly after the debacle of the last four state governments. They're starting to head back to a more moderate approach. Jim Molan was replaced by a moderate. Now, they may not like it at a federal level, but I think the New South Wales Party is very happy to be seen to be a more moderate party, particularly given that there's nothing in Queensland and the Victorian Liberals are not the best example of a non-Labor party that the country's ever seen. Let's keep it at that.
1: The Liberal Party did install Maria Kovacic to replace Jim Mullen, who died earlier this year. And in her first speech to Senate, she spoke in favour of those changes to negative gearing systems and a plan to reduce the amount of homes that can be negatively geared. And this is directly opposite to current Liberal Party policy. And listening to her speech, I was just wondering... How soon will it be before Peter Dutton closes her down? But in the context of the sort of people that the New South Wales Liberal Party wants to put into the Senate, and bearing in mind, as you referred to, David, that the Liberal Party in New South Wales is far more moderate than any other part of Australia, and possibly the only part of Australia where the true moderate Liberal Party exists. And because of this, I think it's just hard to see where Warren Mundine will be able to fit into this sort of future that the New South Wales Liberal Party is trying to set up. It might
2: be better to move to Victoria and
1: hope one of the senators
2: there decides to retire or resign or what have you. But again, he's not a terribly unifying figure. He's not a terribly popular figure. And there may be a whole lot of reasons that are not fair in there. I, I don't know. But certainly even within the Liberal Party, he's not terribly popular. And I think that the announcement that he was a frontrunner for the seat didn't come from any official selection panel, but from Mundine himself, in the hope that should Maurice Payne retire, he would get that seat. It's a long shot, but I guess at this point, he's only up to long shots.
1: And it looks like we did speak a little bit too soon. In late news on Friday, Senator Maurice Payne did announce that she's going to retire from politics on the 30th of September and that's just in a few weeks' time. So it looks like there might be a bit of fireworks in the Liberal Party over the next few weeks. And let's see if Warren Mundine is the person who ends up getting pre-selection in the Senate for the Liberal Party. It's unlikely, but let's see how it goes. And we also saw the departure of Alan Joyce as the CEO of Qantas, and it's not really such a big deal for him. He was due to leave at the end of this year, but he's resigned a few months earlier. And when you've received $125 million worth of payments over the past 15 years, what difference is a few months going to make? But he's leaving at a time when Qantas has got one of the worst corporate reputations in Australia, and not too long ago had one of the best corporate reputations in the world. But Now it's got a poor service record, it's got a bad workplace record, high airfares, and it's got a reputation for doing whatever it can to make a profit, and it made a record profit of $2.5 billion in the last financial year, and this might be good news for shareholders in the short term, but it comes at a massive cost in other ways. The name of Qantas might have been damaged to the point of no return, and I think that the new CEO, Vanessa Hudson, she's got a big job ahead of her as well.
2: Yeah, Sorry, I've been crying tears of despondence. If Alan Joyce can't hold a job down, who can? The worst CEO in Australia should not have lasted beyond the first scandal. And this leads us to who is actually also at fault, which is the board. It's very interesting that someone on Twitter pointed out, I'm sorry, X, Todd Sampson, who posits himself as a branding expert, is on the board of Qantas. Qantas. Mm, maybe I'm a branding expert too and I can get a job on the board of Qantas. But the whole board is is responsible. They let Joyce run amok. He treated workers abominably and he treated his customers abominably. Uh, He treated his shareholders well till now. He treated the board well. A good CEO can balance the interests of all of those off each other for the best result for everybody. There's not many of those in Australia. But that's what a good CEO does. We have customers, we have to look after them. We have shareholders, we have to look after them. These aren't in any order, by the way. We have finances that we have to keep in good working order. We have employees who we have to keep in good working order. Joyce failed on two of those, and I would argue the two most important. Because if you're looking after your employees and you're looking after your customers, the other two pretty much look after themselves. And this is why Joyce has been an absolute disgrace. The famous scene in Rain Man, where Dustin Hoffman's character refuses to fly any airline but Qantas because it's the only one that uh, hasn't had an accident, would now probably get groans of regret or bits of laughter as we realise the maintenance schedule on Qantas has been trashed. And of course... To keep selling seats for flights they know would be cancelled and then putting a deadline on when you can take that flight again and get the credit back for it was unbelievably obtuse. I think the one rule of crony capitalism or kleptocapitalism, or whatever you want to call it is you don't steal from the wealthy now i know it's not just wealthy people who fly planes but a lot of wealthy people would have been caught up with these cancellations and he overstepped the mark he should have just stopped at kicking into the poor but instead he started to kick into the wealthy and despite being one of them has lost his job sure he resigned but he bought it for it himself of
1: course he did And the behaviour of Alan Joyce has been the classic example of the robber baron. It's been all the bad behaviour of a corporation rolled into one, and it's not been a secret. It's all been on public display, sacking an entire workforce back in 2020, grounding the entire Qantas fleet back in 2011, locking out staff during an industrial dispute instead of sitting down and talking with them selling tickets to flights, as you mentioned, that had already been cancelled, refusing to offer flight credits left over from early stages of the COVID pandemic, an ageing fleet, lost baggage, poor service, the bullying behaviour of a corporate monopolist, getting government handouts. And this hasn't been done in secret. It's all out in the open. And now there might be court action induced by the ACCC, which could result in large corporate penalties as well. So the government has probably now got an opportunity to tighten up regulations for corporate behaviour and this would be the perfect opportunity. Everyone's got a bad news Qantas story to tell at the moment. Albanese also needs to prove that he's not close to business after all that news about the Chairman's Lounge VIP pass for his son. all the accusations of favourable treatment for Qantas by denying extra flights in Australia for Qatar Airways. So I wouldn't be surprised if Anthony Albanese creates some kind of Qantas-specific legislation and some punitive action against Qantas just to show that he's not too close to Qantas and not too close to business. But whatever the case is, and we talked about this last week, but whatever the case is, it was definitely time for Alan Joyce to go he showed the worst behavior and the worst successes of the corporate sector and it's also another example of why prime ministers need to keep their distance from the corporate sector at least in appearances
2: yeah exactly it's been not the best shall we say look for the government Uh, I got a bit of stick for downplaying the chairman's club membership for Nathan Albanese and at the time I thought that it would have been something that might have not had much of an effect. But given everything else we've learnt since, it was not a smart move to accept that membership. I think, too, that you've got to be careful that you don't fall into the trap that V. Gordon Child warned us about in 1923, almost 100 years ago, well, 100 years ago where Labor parties get into government and then are so seduced by the trappings of office forget why they got into government and end up just being the same, how Labor governs. Everyone on the left or in the centre should read it. And I think, yeah, we've got to this point where Labor has to start to demonstrate it's not too close to business. Sure, as I said last week, a Labor Party does want to assuage business and to say that we're not out to destroy you, necessarily. It has to balance many interests. But it also should remember that it comes from the workers' side of things. And yes, the working class has changed. But if Labour doesn't remember its absolute core values, it will go the way that the Liberal Party seems to go and not much long afterwards. This is not a good thing or a bad thing necessarily. There's bad things about it and sad things about it. And there's good things about it. But ultimately, the good and the bad cancel each other out and the gap will be filled by something else. Do those people who've devoted their life to Labour, the so-called rusted-ons, The party members, is that what they want from the party? Is the current leadership, is that what it wants from the party? A dying, moribund dinosaur that is fighting the battles of the 1980s rather than moving ahead and fighting the battles of the 2020s.
0: You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon.
1: Some of our listeners have asked the question, why is Australia so fearful of change? And this is in the context of the current Voice to Parliament referendum and any other referendum really, but we also see it in the current debate about industrial relations changes, that there's always a belief that the world as we know it is going to collapse and that doesn't end up happening and then we move on to the next scare campaign. The rhetoric of Australia is that it's a country that is free and adventurous, it's bold and brave, but... Politically, and especially on Indigenous issues, it's anything but. And it's hard to say what has caused all of this, whether it's the way that the Constitution was created all those years ago, back in 1901, where it's just so easy to whip up a frenzy about it. We're seeing it now. We saw it in the Republic referendum back in 1999. Could it be something else? Could it be a fear about Australia being a stolen continent that it could then be stolen by someone else? Is it because of the brand of conservatism that was installed by the Howard government in 1996 that is so deep-rooted that even when there is a Labor government, it tries to replicate conservative governments? When Kevin Rudd won office in 2007, He had to appeal as a fiscal conservative and as a social conservative as well. He pushed along that churchy sort of character that he even went to church each week and he felt that he had to talk about his faith. Anthony Albanese in 2022, he had to appeal as a cautious and careful leader And we never hear of a Liberal Party claiming that they'll be a radical socialist to get into office, so it doesn't work the other way. And I acknowledge that every leader has to present as a safe and cautious and conservative option in Australia, but we live in times where there needs to be a certain level of radical change, and that's just not going to happen with the level of caution that we've got at the moment.
2: Something's got to give. Will you just sit down with the vast majority of Australians and explain precisely what the voice is without the noise of a corrupted media and a media supporting a corrupted party, they would say, oh, that's actually nothing. That's a good thing to do and vote in favour. And we'd get very similar figures to the 1967 referendum. And I don't really believe the polls, I have to say. I think the polls are skewing a little bit conservative and I think they're being used as a political weapon rather than an accurate reflection of what's going on. They're not really taking enough notice of the 18 to 35 demographic, the vast majority of whom think this is a good thing. I don't think they're taking enough notice of the 35 to 60 demographic, that generation who grew up seeing changes in attitude. And a lot of the 60 and up demographic also want to see it changed. People are pointing to Queensland saying, oh, look at all the rednecks. One, that's probably being extremely unfair to Queensland. And to the population centres of Brisbane and the Gold Coast, I think, will skew things. Western Australia, I think Perth is a much more progressive city than we've said. South Australia has always been a bit more progressive in a strange kind of conservatism. So again, I don't think our polls are looking enough at what's actually happening. And of course, there's only one poll that counts and that's the one on election day. I'm not saying that I definitely think it's going to win. I I think there's a, a real worry, and the pessimistic part of me is worried that racist Australia will raise its ugly head once more. Fearful, timid Australia, worried of the slightest change because someone with no qualifications and with hidden interests and biases everywhere has said they will take your property without actually explaining how this is going to be possible. But I also think... There's no reason to give up for the yes vote. Watching Australian music legends, John Farnham, Daryl Braithwaite, Kate Sobrano, Paul Kelly come out in favour, it probably doesn't help, but it doesn't hurt. People apparently were surprised that Peter Garrett came out in favour of The Voice, whereas, of course, Midnight Oil have been one of the most consistently pro-Indigenous bands. Probably it goes... Yothu Yindi, the Warumpi band, Midnight Oil, in terms of that type of thing. But it also shows that people don't listen to the lyrics of music. I guess the issue is, is there enough time to change the debate? And I'll be fair, I am seeing the debate changing. From the headlines I see on Sky News, it's been a lot more, oh, this might come through and it might not be so bad, but, you know, maybe... I think the big strategic error was if you don't know, vote no, uh, which came across as incredibly ignorant and poorly thought through, and the general unpopularity of the people urging you to vote no.
1: Oh well, that's the timidity on the voice to parliament within the media and generally within the political system, but it's uh, it's also across a lot of other issues and. Politics is a grind, it's a bit of a slog, but in Australia it's just too combative and it's hard to get anything achieved unless it's supported by the Liberal Party. Even when they're in opposition, they're almost like a government in exile. And they always have their supporters within the media and the business community who are very cautious and very straight people as well. And Australia likes to talk of itself as bold and brave on the sporting field. And it draws on the icon of the bold and brave soldier at Gallipoli and then the armed forces. And the national anthem sings about being young and free. And that's probably better than singing out that we're all old and scared. But Campaigns for positive social change try to appeal to people's better instincts and their better nature, whereas negative campaigns in Australia appeal to anxieties and prejudices, and we saw that in the same sex marriage debate back in. 2017 we're seeing it now in the voice of parliament debate we see it in the debate about changes to industrial relations laws to protect workers there's this fear and loathing a fear of missing out or a fear of the unknown that can be so easily exploited by conservative forces and then there's the tall poppy syndrome where anything outside of the mainstream is knocked down even if it's good for the mainstream we see the ignorance exploited as well as you mentioned before David don't know vote no and that's another example and there's a lot of social economic and political changes that will need to be made if Australia is to be successful over the next 40 or 50 years. But it's, to me, it's a little bit like the prisoners in Plato's cave where they're seeing their own shadows on the wall for the first time. And because they've never seen them before, they're just too frightened to do anything. The, yeah, the idea of
2: the Australia the as the Larrikan Nation as that whole that we're young and that we're free and that we do what we want has never been true. It started as really a penal colony, Sorry, it was true before 1788, interestingly enough. But from 1788, it's never really been true. We have always played it very safely. We've had, at a federal level, far more conservative governments or far more non-Labour governments than Labour governments. States are different. It's almost as if the six states are completely separate entities to the federal government in some cases. But occasionally, we rise to the occasion And I'm hoping that we will on October 14.
1: Oh, and if you're wondering where all of this is going, you know, all of this pondering for me started off with the legalising cannabis bill introduced by the Australian Greens. And it's a bill to legalise growing and possessing cannabis plants for personal use, manufacturing and selling cannabis products, operating cannabis cafes and importing and exporting cannabis cannabis products. And it's been knocked back by the Labor government, but it's the immediacy of the rejection that surprised me. And this would actually be a positive social reform, whatever you think of marijuana and cannabis products, and would allow for great business opportunities for medicinal cannabis. 78% of people support decriminalising the use of marijuana. It costs around $850 million each year for policing and court costs. So there'd be a savings for the national budget as well, and I'm sure that many Labor caucus members would have smoked marijuana during their student days. I can just imagine a young Anthony Albanese smoking a joint out the back of the Manning Bar at Sydney University or in the offices of Honiswire, and... I haven't had any cannabis products for over 20 years, so please don't send the police over to me, David. But
2: Sorry, I was on the phone. Uh, I'll, I'll call you back, Constable.
1: <laughs> this really isn't a big deal. You know, what's the fear? Is it a fear of negative media headlines, a, a religious and conservative backlash, the Christian lobby? And we also had the bill put up by the Australian Greens to set up an anti-poverty commission. And you'd think, well, who wouldn't want that? But that hasn't got any support from the government or from the opposition. And even in West Australia, where the Labor government has 53 of the 59 seats, and they've also got control of the upper house, the Aboriginal heritage laws, they got misrepresented and shouted down by a Liberal Party, who's only got two seats in Parliament, and they're not even the official opposition. So because of this outrage, the laws are changed immediately. And I realise that you have to pick and choose your battles carefully in politics. But Nothing ever changes because we haven't got the courageous leaders who are prepared to force positive social and political change.
2: Now, I've never had a cannabis product. I've never been drunk. I've never taken non-prescribed pills and I've never taken non-prescribed pills for longer than absolutely necessary. I've always taken the minimum. That's not to say I'm a better person than anybody else. It's just the way I'm built. Many, many years ago... I worked for the Department of Corrective Services in New South Wales, based in one of the jails, as a very, very young man before I went to university, even. And one of the things that you'd see hints of would be young men around my age then, which was around 19, 20, put into prison for dealing marijuana, even though they weren't dealing in large amounts. You know They'd been caught growing a couple of plants at home and selling that off to their mates at just a bit more than cost, and it was a life-ruining experience for most of them. Again, I've never touched it. I, I'm not interested in touching it, but there are worse drugs that are legal. Alcohol is the leading cause of domestic violence. Gambling causes more ruin than the habitual use of cannabis has ever caused. Tobacco is a terrible drug that wreaks havoc with your body for all kinds of reasons in a way that marijuana doesn't. And I know that it's not tobacco, it's the other things, but the way they manufacture tobacco products is very dangerous, yet it's legal. I don't understand why a government wouldn't look at the potential tax income of softer drugs and say, hold on. If we control this a little bit and then you charge whatever it costs, plus a bit of profit for the person selling it because that's the system we live in, plus tax, I don't know why governments aren't looking at it and saying, hold on, we can do this. And it's worked in other parts of the world. The war on drugs has failed and keeps failing. So I think it's time to rethink everything with a bit of compassion, a bit of empathy and a bit of common sense.
0: This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can contribute and support New Politics on Substack and Patreon. We dance like New Year's Eve. We we dance from sheer
2: relief. Everything must change. Just promise
1: me this. No rose, There's a new batch of opinion polls, and during the week, there was the release of polls from News Poll, Redbridge, Essential, and Morgan. So that's a lot to digest in the one week, but They're all showing more or less the same factors. The vote for the Labor government has dropped over the recent months and it's still way ahead in... The two party preferred vote of the Liberal and National parties and its level of vote is still at a higher level than at the 2022 federal election. And that probably doesn't mean that much because the 2022 federal election result was an unusual result with the Labor Party receiving its lowest primary vote since 1934, but still managing to win the election. The next election might have different characteristics to it. So the primary vote will probably need to be at a higher level than it received in 2022. But the bigger issue is that the personal ratings for the Prime Minister are in negative territory for the first time since he became Prime Minister. And 46% of people who were polled, they approve of the Prime Minister's performance and 47% disapprove. And Peter Dunn's figures are in negative territory, but that's to be expected because he's an entirely negative character. But it's almost midway through this term of office and the polls this far out from an election probably don't mean that much. But should the Labor government be concerned about this information that's just coming through?
2: Yes. Again, I wonder how much of it is being weaponised rather than being an accurate reflection of really what the public is thinking. Having said that, as we've documented, there's been a bit going on that would hit into the popularity and credibility of a government. I can't help but wonder, and I've said this many times before, even earlier, whether we're seeing the end of the major parties in a slow or even moderately slow decline, and that in the next three or four elections, we'll have a different makeup, whether it's Greens and Nationals, which I don't think is likely. But National Party is incredibly consistent in its electoral results, and so are the Greens. They're just not able to, for many reasons, mostly technical and electoral, able to translate their votes into seats, even though they get more votes than the National Party. Whether we get a parliament of mostly independents with Greens and nationals, there is a sort of uneasy opposition Whether Labour and Liberal reform into parties that more accurately reflect modern ideas, I don't know. But certainly Labour should be streets ahead of the Liberal Party. I think some of it is of their own doing, but I think there's a deeper malaise or a deeper concern in the public about the old ways of doing things. And I wonder if we're slowly, blindly grasping towards something new.
1: And governments do just need to get on with the job at hand and do whatever they need to do to provide services and provide everything in the public interest. But given the relative merits of both sides, as you suggested, David, Labor should be way ahead in the opinion polls. Peter Dutton is a negative character. He's got a very lacklustre team. He's proposed nothing of note, and he just says no to everything. But... He's also using the same method of Tony Abbott, which was to say no to everything, create mischief and havoc, and hope to reap the rewards of it. And we saw the havoc created in Parliament this week. The Liberal Party also encouraged a group of radical pharmacists to disrupt Parliament question time. For me, that was a big embarrassment, but the Liberal Party is banking on negativity working in their favour in the same way that it worked for Tony Abbott in 2013, and It does seem to be having some effect for them in the polls, and it just goes to show that it's the negativity that always seems to win out in federal politics. It's the same rule book used by the Republican Party in the United States, and it seems like it's being well used by the Liberal Party in Australia.
2: It worked for the Liberal Party for about two years, maybe four, and then it stopped working, yet they keep returning to it. If News Corp collapses, and there are some voices saying it might, I'm not so convinced it will, but if... Rupert Murdoch dies. If the trend that's increasing of people not reading newspapers continues or increases, the Liberal Party has nothing to stand on and would have to totally rethink its policies and make its policies those of something that is electable rather than something that people will vote for because they've been scared into it. We've said before that we don't think Peter Dutton will make the next election. I still think that's very possible. If the referendum ends up being a yes vote, I think we can find within, by the end of October, he'll be gone. They might hold out till January where they can do it quietly, but I think even he wouldn't believe that he could last long in the role, given that he's thrown everything into making sure that the public votes no, and if they say yes, it means that what we all know to be true is true, that he's unelectable and that he's not a
1: terribly popular public figure and also in the latest opinion polls and you know whether we trust them or or not it's the only measure or statistical information that we've got at the moment but the no vote for the voice of parliament according to these opinion polls has increased and this seems to be dragging down not just the approval rating of the prime minister but the voting intentions for the government as well and opinion polls are never about just the one issue but there's does seem to be a correlation between an increase for the no campaign and a drop in support for Anthony Albanese and the government and I think because of this that the Liberal and National parties can see the results of their nasty work and see an improvement for them in the polls but I I feel that because they're seeing an improvement in the polls for them that they'll ramp up the fear and loathing campaign against the voice of parliament over the next five or six weeks. And we suggested this some time ago, that that's what the opposition to the voice of parliament is all about. It's not a matter of principle, because there isn't any. It's not a matter of providing a different solution or a better solution, because they haven't provided any. And they've admitted this themselves. This is all about damaging the Prime Minister and the Labor government and working towards winning the next federal election. That's what all of this is about. But if the voice of parliament referendum is lost on October the 14th, well... What's their strategy then? You know, I guess they'll just look for the next point of division and focus upon that because they've got nothing else to offer. And for me, it's like a group of radical reactionaries that just say no to everything. They're like the Luddites from the 19th century or the book burners of the 20th century. And Peter Dutton is suggesting a second referendum on the voice of Parliament if he becomes Prime Minister. And they would just drag out the division well into the future. And this would just be another false promise. If he did become Prime Minister after 2025, and that's another two years away, we'd have the referendum because he promised it. But just like John Howard did with the Republic referendum in 1999, he'd promise the referendum and then do his best to defeat it. So there's another five weeks to go with the Voice to Parliament campaign. Here's Marsha Langton talking about the campaign at the National Press Club address during the week.
3: I urge Australians, who are as yet to make up their minds, don't imagine that there's another opportunity around the corner. Don't think your no vote goes in a different pile marked next time. In this referendum, there are only two options. A yes vote that delivers recognition through a voice and all the hope and healing it represents. By adopting the Uluru Uluru Statement's invitation for us to all walk together in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Or a no vote, which binds us more closely, all of us, to a broken status quo. Another turn of the cycle of poverty and disadvantage and disempowerment. The levels of abuse against the YES campaigners, including death threats and uh, daily published insults and abuse. are. Uh, takes a toll, and I think our um, generation of leaders will hand over to younger leaders, um, and they too then will become targets like Adam Goods, like Stan Grant, and the cycle will continue. And in this regard, I think the media has a responsibility to lift their game in reporting on these issues and not participate in pylons on persons who are good and decent people.
1: So Marsha Langton is imploring the public to vote. Yes, she's also imploring the media to take responsibility and behave themselves, but just like the Liberal Party, they never take responsibility for any of their actions. The... Media just has a quick look over the fence to see what the Liberal Party is up to, and then they follow and support whatever they might be doing. So there's still a few more weeks to go in this Voice to Parliament campaign, but I just fear that it's going to become a lot worse over the next few weeks. And of course, it didn't need to be like this, but that's just how the Liberal Party of today works. It never works in the interests of the nation. It just works towards its own conservative interests, and I think we all lose out because of this. It was a very powerful speech, and... It might have been
2: the thing that changes. It might have been the turning point in the campaign. And, of course, the really interesting thing is that I'm going to bet that there will be a lot of articles saying, yes, Marsha Langton's right from the mainstream press. The mainstream press is terrible and did this. And and at the same time, in the same paper, there'll be why Marsha Langton is a dangerous uh, radical who should not be listened to, why the no vote is the only way to go, (laughs) and all of the things that she warned about. It was a good speech, it really was. The other thing too I just want to point out is that one of the things that makes me suspect that yes might get up is that Dutton's suggestion that he'll run a second referendum if he wins to me is an acknowledgement of defeat because it seems to me he's trying to get the waverers who aren't sure to say, oh, okay, so they'll run one that might be a bit better later. But really what it's done is shown that he knows that this is the right thing to do and he's trying to approve of it without approving of it. So there's that. But Marsha Langton was absolutely correct in everything she said. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's more that I can add to it.
1: That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.